If you will, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, uh, we will be in verses 9 through 15. John chapter 3, 9 through 15. And as you are turning there, let me uh, encourage you to uh, prayerfully consider giving towards our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Uh, I can't think of a, great, uh, a, a greater uh, offering that we take up as a church uh, than the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Not a single cent, not a single dime stays here in the church building, but rather it goes out into the mission field to help our International Mission Board missionaries that are on the front lines in areas where people have never heard of the name of Christ. That money goes to help support them, helps to pay their salaries, uh, health insurance, and also give them resources uh, so that they can share with those who have never heard of Christ. And so uh, we have uh, two ways that you can give to Lottie Moon. Uh, There are envelopes in the pew in front of you, but there's also the Lottie Moon post office, which you saw that uh, Jody and I put together a special little video to to illustrate how that operates. Uh, I want to encourage you to give to Lottie Moon. Uh, It is one of my favorite offerings that we do as a church body. Uh, because it does go in to help to proclaim the name of Christ uh, to those who have never heard. John chapter 3, uh, this morning, verses 9 through 15, if you will stand with me at the reading of God's Word. Verse 9 says this, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You, Father, for the truth of Your Word, that it is holy, infallible, able to correct and reprove our broken lives. Lord, I thank You, Father, for the time that we have in this moment that we can continue our worship in the hearing of your truth. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to have hearts that are willing to listen and ears willing to hear and learn of how we are to look and live on you daily, moment by moment, hour by hour, that everything we are is to look and live on our glorious Savior. So, Lord, I pray and ask that in the next few moments that you would be the teacher, not me. Lord, Father, may I decrease that you may increase and receive all the glory and honor to your name. I ask and pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, my hope and my aim is that we leave here looking and living on our glorious Savior. That we would see that Christ is far greater, far better than anything that this world has to offer. That we are to be Uh, our minds fixated on Christ, that we are to leave here looking and living and savoring all that Jesus is, that he is to be preeminent, that is the first in our minds, that when we wake up and when we go to sleep, that our minds are going, Lord, how can I serve you? How can I look and live on you? How can I defeat the sin that so easily entangles me? Lord, I want to look on you and be satisfied 
to see that you are far greater than this world has to offer. That our minds and the busyness that can happen in this season, as we enter into the Christmas season, that we see that Christ is glorious. Not a sale, not a Black Friday moment, that our phones aren't having the notifications turned on for the Cyber Monday sale that's going to hit Amazon, we're all going to freak out on, but rather that our heart is burdened with not only knowing who Christ is, but that our friends, our family, our co-workers, our fellow students know who Jesus is. In fact, that is the whole aim of the Scriptures. From the, from the book of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, it is that we see that Christ is glorious, that Christ is to be preeminent and first and foremost. And so as we come into a text this morning, I want to sort of set up what's going on here because we sort of dropped into the story, if you will, in verse 9. So if you will, uh, let's go back to verse 2 and just have an understanding of what's going on here. In verse 2, it says that uh, this man who is Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which just means teacher in Hebrew, that we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You'll remember with me that theologians for centuries have been calling this story Nick at Night. And for the kids who don't get that reference, ask your parents what they majored in in college and high school uh, to understand what Nicodemus is. But Nicodemus is a religious leader who comes in the middle of the night because he's seen who, that Jesus is not just some ordinary uh, prophet, just not some great teacher that has come onto the scene, but rather this Jesus is able to turn water into wine, as it showed just a few sentences above in John chapter 2, that this is a man who controls the very elements and he can change H2O into the chemical uh, uh, quotation mark of what wine is, that this is a Jesus who can speak things into existence. But not only can he do uh, miracles and signs, but this Jesus can also speak with authority, that he teaches in a way that the people have never heard before. That they hear how Jesus is telling them about the coming of God's kingdom and how glorious this moment is going to be. And they're going, well, this is not just a normal Sunday school day lesson that the Pharisees showing us. This is someone different. And so Nicodemus, this teacher of Israel, this one who has spent years understanding what the Hebrew Bible was showing them about this coming Messiah, comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and he says, we know that you are a teacher from God because no one can do these, these signs. And I love how bluntly Christ responds in verse 3. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To which I imagine Nick wondered at that moment, how can a man be born again? He even shows that in the text, that Nicodemus begins to wonder, whoa now, how can a man enter back into his mother's womb? That's, that's not how this works. That's not how life operates. And so he's wondering how this happens. And But through verses 5 through 8, we see Christ is not talking about flesh and blood birth, but being born of the Spirit. And talking about spiritual birth, and that unless you experience, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, is at a loss. And so what does someone do when they are at loss for understanding? They ask for explanation. And so that's what we enter into in verse 9 here, where he says to, to Christ, how can these things be? Now, I don't want you to think that I'm being too hard on old Nick here. I'm not. Because if any of us were in that same position as Nicodemus in that moment, we too would be asking, how can this be? 
right? If someone tells you you have to be born again and you've never heard that terminology before, you would be going, oh, that's a little weird. Uh, you can't be born again. So I don't want you to think that I'm uh, beating down on Nicodemus here. I'm saying we are all Nicodemus in this story. We would all be asking, well, how can these things be? How can I be born again? And so Jesus gives reason for the why to Nicodemus, the teacher of the law in verse 11, where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Verse 11 says, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus is saying there is a difference in the knowing and the knowing. Jesus is saying you can have all the head knowledge of who God is and yet not understand what I am saying. I say this to you, to you all the time. There, the greatest distance in the world is not the distance between Metter, Georgia, and the River Nile in Egypt. The greatest distance in the world is 18 inches. The distance between your head to your heart. You see, you can have all the head knowledge of who God is. You think that you have all the Sunday school answers. You can have the Bible memorized and yet not know who God is. Not understand how beautiful He is and how all-encompassing our worship should be to this God because of what He did through us through Christ. You can have all the knowledge of who Christ is and yet be as lost as you were when you were born. And so Jesus is saying that how... Can you understand the things that I'm talking to you about when you don't understand the truth? You're not receiving it, Nicodemus. And so I love how Christ continues in verse 12 where he says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I love how Christ responds to Nicodemus. I don't want you to hear Christ's response to Nicodemus in an accusatory tone. I want you to hear it that Jesus is pivoting how he's going to talk to Nicodemus. And we see this in verse 13, where he stops talking to Nicodemus like a teacher of the law, but rather the son of man, as the son of God. He's going to talk to Nicodemus in a way that he's going to truly understand. In verse 13, he says to Nicodemus, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. You see, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he is not just some powerful teacher that has come on the scene that can perform, that can perform some miracles. He's not just telling Nicodemus that I can uh, uh, turn water into wine and raise the dead. Rather, I am the Son of God. You see, Jesus uses one of his favorite designations for himself that we see found in the Old Testament uh, throughout Daniel and Ezekiel. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And Nicodemus the teacher of the law, the one whose very purpose is to look for the Messiah to come, goes, oh, I know what that means. Old Nick is finally putting the pieces together when he hears Jesus say that no one has ascended into heaven except for he who descended, being the Son of Man. Jesus is calling himself the Son of God. Jesus is calling himself the Messiah. See, Nicodemus is now putting the pieces together. And then so Jesus because he's helping Nicodemus understand what's going on. And verses 14 and 15 uses one of, the, one of my favorite moments in all of Scripture. Now, I'm a preacher. I have a lot of favorite moments, right? Verses 14 and 15, that's one of my favorites. I told the students uh, during Sunday school hour that I feel like I've spent about five years just within this passage. 
because of how beautiful it is. I told my wife earlier this week that in reading about this passage in particular, I still find new truths. Things still come to life to me, and I go, wow, how glorious our God is to use this. And I want to show you in just a moment, but I'm getting excited, you can tell. Verses 14 to 15 say this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let me read verses 14 and 15 again because of the significance. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, Jesus picks an odd analogy here to drive home his point to old Nick. One that if we don't look closer, we will miss the beauty of the analogy. That Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the one that takes away our sins, compares himself with that of a snake. Don't miss that comparison that Christ is doing here. Because Christ is truly driving home the beauty of the restoration that will come in the cross to, to best understand this text, I want us to look at Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. You don't have to turn there. Uh, that passage will be on the screen this morning. From Mount Hor, they set out, by the way, to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. This is the children of Israel, the ones who have been uh, rescued from that of Egypt, the ones who have seen the wonders of God, the ones who have been given the Ten Commandments, the one who is who had been given the manna from heaven and the quail and the uh, pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day, and they have grown impatient. I just want you to understand who these people are. And the people spoke out against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Verse 7, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Isn't it interesting, church, that God chooses to rescue his people from the curse with an image of the curse? You see, by using this story from the time of the wilderness, Christ is showing Nicodemus and us two truths, two crucial truths this morning of what it means to be born again. The first truth is this, why you must be born again. Why you must be born again. You see, why do the children of Israel have to look at a snake to be healed? Couldn't God have simply spoke healing throughout the Israelite camp? This is the same God who could do wonders to, the, to showcase to the children of Israel who He is. This is the same God who spoke The locusts to go into Egypt who brought darkness in. Couldn't this God speak healing? Why then do the children of Israel have to look at a bronze serpent on a pole to be healed? 
Why, in the same way, must we be born again to be restored to the Father? To answer that question, we need to look deeper at the text in Numbers because in John's Gospel, Christ is telling Nicodemus and us, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. You see, Christ is trying to drive home a point as to the why we must be born again. You see, in the passage in Numbers, the people of Israel who were headed to the promised land forget all that God has done for them since Exodus. Now, I don't want you to think that I am being hard on Israel either, because Israel is an image of us, where God shows up in a big way in our lives, heals something that happened in our lives, and then in a few moments, we will forget what God has done. We will forget the grace that He's given us, the forgiveness of sins, and we will go back to the very sin that easily entangles us. We are like a dog that returns to its vomit because we think that that will satisfy us rather than God. And so the children of Israel are like this as well. We are like that as well. We have seen God do wonders here at this church. We have seen God perform miracles. We have seen God save lives. And yet, myself included, we will forget all that God has done. We will grow impatient with God. We will grow disturbed with him. We will look at the food that he's given us, the manna that he is a gift from heaven, and call it worthless. Isn't that what the children of Israel did in that Numbers text? They said, we have no food, and we loathe this worthless food. I mean, can you just imagine the audacity that these people have here? And so God sends fiery serpents into the camp of Israel. And these serpents bite them. Now, I don't want you to think that these serpents are like, uh, you know, like sci-fi here where the snakes are on like fire or something like that. Uh, Scholars and theologians believe that the serpents, their bite itself caused a great fever to come upon the individual. That they were literally, they felt as if they were on fire. That there was no relief that would come. And these snakes went into the camp and they bit people. You see, what God is doing there is showing the sin of the people. He's using the snakes as an analogy of the sin that the people have committed, that they have doubted God, that they have doubted Him. And so in the same way, we too have sinned, right? We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all chosen our own path. We have all chosen our own way. We look and say, no, I know best. I know the right way. And I'm going to go and do it my way, as the old Sinatra song says. Or we look to other things to satisfy us. We look to other things to make us think that we will be happy. We look to romance and think that if I just have the the romance that I see on the Hallmark Channel movies at Christmas time, then my Christmas will be so much better. If I just have the boyfriend or the girlfriend at this time of the year, then everything is going to be better for me. If my wife or husband would just learn to do this, then I will be happy. We think that romance will satisfy us. Or maybe it's a job. Maybe if we think we just have this job and then I can make this money, my life will be better, my life will be complete, and I can finally just sit back and relax and enjoy my life. Maybe it's other things in your life. Maybe there are other things that you're saying that you would rather hold on to, white-knuckled to, not give over to God because you don't want God to be the true God of your life. 
And so because of that, we too are like the children of Israel where the serpents come into our, into our camps and they bite us. What can save us from our life of sin? Woe is me, wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this life of sin? Praise be to God because he gave a way for salvation to the children of Israel. He gave a way to us as well. And he gave Moses the command to craft a bronze serpent and put it on a pole in the middle of the camp so that when someone is bitten by the viper of death, when they look on it, they will live. All it took was a look to live. All they had to do was in the pain of their existence in that moment, realizing that they are the ones that caused the sin. They are the ones who caused this pain upon themselves. God said, all you have to do is look at the bronze serpent that Moses has crafted, set it in the middle of the camp, look and live. All it takes is a look. But you have to understand the great depth of your own soul, the great depth of your own sin. You have to realize that you need a Savior. I imagine that there were many in the camp of Israel that day that died, even with the pole there, because they thought that, no, that's stupid. Look on a pole and live? All I have to do is look there? No, no, no. See, I need modern medicine here. I need, uh, I, I need a good uh, uh, ice bath. I need, to, I need to really make my life good. And then if that doesn't work, then I'll look and live. You see, that's not how God's economy works. That's not how this operates. God said there was one way for the people of Israel to live that day, and that was to look and live on the pole, to look and live on the brazen image. And that's the same with us today. There's only one way to salvation. There's only one way for our sins to be forgiven. There is only one way. And that is to look and live on the Savior. So as to the why we must be born again is because we're sinners. And as to the how we are born again is to look on Christ. You see, Jesus in verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 3 said this again, as Moses looked at the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. You see, Jesus, like that of the serpent, will be lifted on the cross for our sins. Why? So that all who look on Christ will live. So that all who look on Christ will live. Isn't it odd that Christ will be compared with that of a serpent, with an image of sin itself? That seems rather odd to me. And yet Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that, he, so, excuse me, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That God made him who knew no sin become sin, so that when we look and live on him, we, the children of God, might become his righteousness, so that we might have relationship with him, so that we might live in Christ. Paul in Galatians 3.12 also wrote, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, Jesus lived a life that we couldn't live. None of us are perfect, no, not one. And so we will go towards our own, our own wants, our own desires. We will go towards the things that we think will satisfy us. Christ never did. Christ lived the sinless, perfect life. And so one of the beautiful things within the story of redemption is this. 
that Christ lived the life that we couldn't live and then died the death that was meant for us. Christ went to the cross like a lamb before his slaughters. And Christ took on the full weight of our sin. And he hung there until it was finished. To tell us die, it is finished. So that he could bring us salvation, so that he could bring us life. That's the beautiful story of restoration that we have in the gospel. And that is why Nicodemus is being told this odd story from Numbers. That Nicodemus, just as Moses looked at the serpent in the wilderness, so I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up so that all who look on me may have eternal life. May all who look at me in faith have eternal life. I don't know of any better way to make this plain and simple for us this morning about how to look and live on Christ for salvation, to how to look for Christ to satisfy us in the busyness of the holiday season that is ahead of us than to tell you a story of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is a uh, preacher from the 1800s. He has had probably a profound impact on me the last uh, five years when I was first uh, told of this man in seminary. Charles Spurgeon is called the Prince of Preachers, and he shares his own conversion story, and it's a lot like ours, trying to overcomplicate the miracle of salvation, trying to say, well, I'll come to Christ when I'm good and ready. When I have this figured out here, then I'll come to Christ, because Christ doesn't want to deal with me like I am right now. I'm a, I'm a mess, right? That was Charles Spurgeon. He felt like he had to somehow work his way into God's good graces. He had to somehow earn the salvation of God. And so Spurgeon was not quite 16-year-old on a snowy day in London in January 6th of 1850. I want to share with you his own words. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. And when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people there that day. And I had heard of the primitive primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. If they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache that day. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly that day, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. 
even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, said he in broad Essex accent, many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spend about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he must have known I was a stranger. Fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued, And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. Spurgeon continues, I saw at once the way of salvation. I knew not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. And the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered. And now I can say, Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. I'm talking to two people this morning. The first are those who have already looked and lived on Christ. I want you to walk away here worshiping our glorious Savior and continuing to look as if, like what Spurgeon said, you could look your eyes away at the glorious cross. I want you to continue to be fervent in prayer, fervent in your reading of the words, fervent in coming to celebrate Christ in the congregation of the church and be in small groups. Continue, church, to look and live. But there's a second person I'm talking to this morning. And those are the people who have tried to do 50 things to satisfy God. But there is no salvation to be found in earning your way into salvation, earning your way into God's love. There's a, uh, a movie that we watch this time of year. Uh, some of you may watch it. Some of you may have it on VHS, Home Alone 2. You'll remember with me the story of Kevin McAllister. He gets separated from his family, winds up in New York City, 
and he befriends a lady in Central Park, and this is the lady that feeds the birds. There's a moment in that movie where Kevin is talking to her, and they're hearing, O come all ye faithful in the New York Symphony. And he tells her what he has to do that night, and she says, Kevin, don't you understand that on Christmas Eve a good deed replaces a bad deed? You see, when I saw that movie as a young kid, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Christmas Eve, you know, good deeds replace bad deeds. That, and as I got older, I saw the stupidity of that. Because good deeds do not replace bad deeds. You cannot work your way into salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Today, you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to make yourself look presentable. You don't have to somehow try to understand all of theology, try to understand all that is. As Spurgeon said back in 1800s, all you have to do is look and live. Look unto the Savior. You don't have to somehow make yourself presentable. All you have to do is acknowledge, God, I'm a sinner in need of your grace. I'm in need of your mercy. So, Lord, I look to you for salvation. And then watch as you will sing the same song that Spurgeon sang, that ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. I don't know your situation today, but I do ask that if you don't know Christ, in a few moments Jody's going to come and lead us in song. I'll be down up front. You can talk to those sitting next to you in the pew. We have deacons around this room. We will stay here all day and share with you of the goodness of God's grace. But let today be the day of salvation. And then, like I said as well, for those who are already looked unto Christ for salvation, continue to look and live on the Savior. Continue to look and live on the glorious nature of the cross. Don't let the busyness of the holiday season pass you by without sitting and being still and seeing how glorious our God is. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you so much for your grace towards us. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, you are a good, good Father. That, Lord, even though, Lord, we have sinned and fallen short of your goodness, and the wages of sin is death, you have sent us the gift of life, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, Lord, I pray and ask that for those in this room who don't know you, I pray that they would look and live on you this morning, that they would leave aside all the things that they think they have to do and look and live on you. And for, for those of us in this room also who have already found salvation in you, Lord, help us to continue to go back to the stream that flows from the cross, the stream of blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins that covers us and makes us white as snow. Lord, let us not get tired of the story of the gospel. Let us not get tired of what it does in our lives. Lord, let us celebrate who you are. And Lord, let us walk into this holiday season, not with lists of things that we have to do, people we have to see, but rather with the mindset, I want to look and live on our glorious Savior because He is worthy of all the praise. I ask and pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.